The Going West Trust and Auckland Libraries bring you highlights from the 2018 Going West Writers' Festival. Graham Douglas Orator 2018 is Paula Morris. She's an award-winning novelist, short story writer and essayist. She's quoted as saying that she strives as a teacher and academic to bring new voices into the light. In this extract, Paula shares with the audience some of her thinking on teaching creative writing. The first challenges of the creative writer are technical. They begin with words. In the book Reading Like a Writer, Francine Prose describes discovering that writing, like reading, was done one word at a time, one punctuation mark at a time. She says it required what a friend calls putting every word on trial for its life, changing an adjective, cutting a phrase, removing a comma and putting it back in. It's surprising, she says, how easily we lose sight of the fact that words are the raw material out of which literature is crafted. How can we articulate what we want to say unless we're vivid and precise with language? How can we convey our vision of the world or world unless we choose our language with care and imagination? Bland prose that relies on cliches suggests a lazy mind, a lazy writer. Why do we want to write if we don't want to write? Now, sometimes people think they want to write, don't they? But they just really want to be, or to have published. Ideally, a blockbuster that will be made into a movie. <laughs> and not a New Zealand movie either. Um, they have a number of ideas, and they believe that ideas are the thing. Or they have a lot of feelings, and they believe feelings are the thing. Creative writing, they think, will allow them to express these ideas and feelings. Not in my classes. Okay. Now, they know how to write a sentence, they think, or at least a phrase. They wouldn't venture so boldly, I think, into a practical class in visual art or architectural filmmaking because they're wary of these other technical skills that might be in demand beyond basic literacy, ideas, and feelings. Now, I don't really believe in ideas, as my students know, not in the context of creative writing. I believe in daydreaming and obsessing and mulling over. I believe in things swirling around in our heads like socks in a tumble dryer, rolling around until one plasters itself against the window. I believe in zoning out, wandering, pilfering, eavesdropping, drifting, spying. I believe in experience and invention and getting lost and working out the puzzle. I believe in passions and obsessions, dreams and nightmares, shadows across your subconscious. In everything goes into the tumble dryer of the mind and eventually something coalesces that can be formed into art. We don't need to wait for the light bulb moment and what that implies, I think, about ideas and inspiration as something external dangling from the ceiling above us. What we need is already inside us churning away in the dark. We need to be alert and present in the world, taking everything in, sensory experience in every facet. And then, if we're writers, we need words. 
Now, ideas, I've argued on many occasions to the increasing boredom of people, uh, are the enemy of the creative writer. Because one of the main issues I face with students of all ages and all contexts is people telling me they get stuck. They run out of steam after a few pages or a few chapters because they've started with an idea and that's the one thing they don't really need. Um, I was quote the American writer Robert Olin Butler. He exhorts his students to stop thinking. He says, please get out of the habit of saying you've got an idea for a story. Art does not come from ideas. Art does not come from the mind. Art comes from the place where you dream. Art comes from your unconscious. It comes from the white hot center of you. So think about our ideas sizzling within us as the pressure on the page that we don't need to be able to understand or articulate in some kind of statement of intent. Our work is bigger than us and deeper and more intelligent. We don't get the chance to explain it to every reader picking up a book in a shop or a library or browsing online, and this is just as well, is it not? Because we will be arguing with readers all the time. I'd like to return now to the notion of imagination, to reclaim it from the strident battalions of the idea. All of us here this weekend need imagination to engage with the words flowing in the room beyond their literal meaning, to make our own associations and connections and sparks, and to continue weaving our larger nets. Imagination in writing is too often defined as making things up a story, a world, a crazy thing that happens. This is why perhaps we put so much emphasis on ideas. I have an idea for a story. Well, great. Like opinions, ideas abound. I like to quote uh, the rap artist, Lady Sovereign. Well, everybody's entitled to opinions. I open my mouth and shit, I got millions. <laughs> She's an English rapper. <laughs> Writing is a concrete act, not a theoretical one. It takes time and skill. With more practice, we can get better. And this is how exercises, however much aspiring writers resist them, can help. To, to many creative writing apprentices, the techniques of the fiction writer, for example, are still a mystery. Conveying three-dimensional characters and moving them around a room, writing plausible dialogue with a dramatic function, exploring all possible aspects of setting, remaining consistent within point of view, working the emotional and dramatic moment, all of these are challenges. Now, if you add the pressure of the idea, weighed down by its ostentatious epaulets of originality and invention, an apprentice writers crumble. They prioritize the idea because it seems to speak of voice and vision, but they're unable to realize it. So abstractions replace concrete detail, and the resulting stories are didactic, derivative, or sketchy. This prioritization of the idea over story skills helps explain the resistance to exercises with tight constraints. Symbols and abstractions feel grand and important. Describing a small rock in the road does not, especially if you're working within a time, uh, word limit. Many apprentice writers rebel against describing a small or ordinary thing because it's boring. How can it help them? They want to write a searing indictment of this or an emotional dissection of that, not bother with the shape of a rock or the color of a backpack or the texture of carpet. 
the challenges both beneath them, because they are artists with ideas and feelings, light bulbs flashing like a halo around their heads, and also because it's too difficult. Uh, when I taught in Scotland, uh, where it rains constantly, I was working with students on a reduced version of John Gardner's famous exercise to describe a lake from the point of view of someone who has just committed a murder without mentioning the murder. So it's a point of view exercise that asks the writer to locate conflict and atmosphere and reveal point of view through the setting description alone. Now, it's a difficult but very useful exercise. And of course, one student was vocal in her criticism. We would never do this in a real story, she complained. And she said this every week about everything I asked her to do. <laughs> and I would say, we don't see tennis players doing sit-ups during matches, but it doesn't mean they don't do them during training, as I would have no idea. <laughs> a lot of rude laughter in this room. Now I'm living back in Auckland, my hometown. Uh, when I'm not working or arguing or lolling around the house watching German supernatural mysteries on TV or slashing at things with knives, I teach creative writing in schools. Now, this is something many artists do to spread the word. How can we excite and stimulate the artists of tomorrow? How can we pass on technical skills? How can we help instill a passion for our materials and their possibilities? I also feel very strongly that too many of us here like to throw up our hands in despair and demand to know why without really considering the complexities of why or having any notion about the context or the steps being taken to address the particular crisis of the day. Why are there not enough Maori or Pacifica or Asian and or queer voices in our national literature? Why are the evil gatekeepers doing this and not that? Why don't we read our own writers of this or of that? Why aren't our books published in this place or that? Why, why, why? Well, there are many reasons, starting with colonialism, and those would form the subject of another address entirely. But let me say this, we can't lament that the field is bare when we haven't taken the time to sow the seeds. Since 2015, when I returned to New Zealand, I visited quite a few schools for ongoing writing projects. This year, I've been working with Rebecca Coonan and the Henderson Massey Local Board on the Outside the Square project with students at Rutherford and at Henderson High. Two of my former creative writing students, Rachel O'Connor and Ruby Porter, worked with small groups of young writers at these schools over two months. Now, the results of the students' work you can see in this little book right here, right now. Now, I spoke earlier about the kaupapa of working small, that is, exercises that have very strict constraints. Now, this may seem counterintuitive when you're trying to encourage young writers. Shouldn't we just want them to write something, anything? Aren't any words better than none? Well, sometimes but not when we're aiming for writing excellence and to push writers in the one thing they absolutely need, language. I don't want to patronize young writers by deciding in advance how little they can achieve. So for this school project, we confined ourselves to creative nonfiction, that is true stories that employ the techniques of fiction like point of view, scene, narrative shape, character, setting, dialogue. Now, what I've found with young writers is that they see imagination as something that only applies to fiction. It's about making stuff up, they tell me. 
Now, this often slows them down as they have to sit waiting for ideas and inspiration. They need to think, which isn't easy when you have me there shouting, stop thinking at them. Now, the results are often derivative, reflecting the books they read or the games they play or the movies they see, or they're generic and vague, they're pocked with the black holes of the unimagined. Um, at another school in a different part of Auckland this year, we really stumbled with fiction. When I asked them to describe a fictional city, they went for very vague sci-fi. Now, this is one of them, and it's not bad. Buildings of glass gather around the centre of the city. Skyscrapers tower over shopping centres and apartment blocks. Clipped to every structure is a carbon collector. Streets aligned with fruit trees. So that's okay, yes, for a 14-year-old. But here's the same writer describing a place she knows, and this is her grandmother's home in Fiji. Wildflowers grow beside a door in front of a blue picket fence. Up roughly made concrete stairs, there's a blood-red terrace with peeling paint. Through the door, handmade from rusting steel rods, rooms are decorated with plastic doilies and dusty furniture. From the kitchen door, a steep slope of spiky grass leads to a field of sugarcane. Now, there's more precision with detail and more imagination, I'd argue, in the latter. So for the Henderson and Rutherford sessions, we opted to focus on creative nonfiction exercises like the ones I do with my undergraduates every week to help develop the elements of storytelling. Writing the truth subverts our understanding of imagination and reclaims it from an association with ideas. We need imagination in how we interrogate ourselves and describe the world. We need imagination to nurture stories and we can begin with our own sensory experience, the places we navigate every day, the people we recognize, everything both above and below the surfaces of the city. When apprentice writers are freed from the demand to imagine a place or a time or a person, to spirit something unknown out of the whirling cloud of ideas beyond their reach, they can focus on the first steps they need to take as writers, articulating the world they've experienced without wordiness, without abstraction, and cracking the seal on their memories and imaginations. I'm just going to read you a couple of little excerpts from right here. My street is very quiet. You never hear anything but the occasional car and a chirp or two come out of trees. But at the end of the road, there's a hill, and at the top of the hill, there's a creaky old bench. From there, you can see over the treetops to the sea. There's a salty taste in the air. Every day at 3.50 p.m. on the dot, an old man with yellow-tinted glasses walks past with his staffy. We have a little chat, but he never sits. Here's another excerpt from another student. There's a creepy square house on the corner, its windows lined with yellow tinfoil. An old man lives there, though I've never seen him, and we speculate about what dark stuff he gets up to in there. My mother says he's not evil. He's just convinced the British royal family is targeting him with lasers. <laughs> when we first moved in here, we were told that the neighbors in the house with the huge stone walls were drug lords. You see why I get them to write this stuff? Okay. I was going to read the full piece of the booklet, but I do need my glasses. Oh, 
This is a Te Araki Monso. I'm going to read you the whole piece because it's fantastic. Whenever I see my grand, she's either cleaning or cooking. Every day after school, she used to stretch this lovely taffy for me. It was chewy and sweet, and then one time I bit into her wedding ring. Her favorite shirt is bright pink, and she's always wearing a grin from ear to ear. Although she's getting old, she's still got a straight back. She can talk for hours, and she has no patience with stupidity. She's quick as a whip, and she doesn't take crap from anyone. One time I came home with the results of a school test. I'd failed, and I knew my grandmother would be mad. Instead of yelling at me, though, she took me for a drive. We passed some homeless people, and she pointed them out to me and said, if you don't get good grades, this will be you. Anyway, I'm really delighted with the work collected in this little book and the windows it opens into the imaginative and real worlds of our young writers. They laboured away on small exercises around moments, colours, sensory experiences. They dug deep into their own points of view, how they made sense of the world. They were challenged on word choice. Are you giving me the five minutes? I'll give you the five minutes. <laughs> I can't really see you, Nicola, without my glasses. Um, they wrote, they rewrote their pieces, they saw how they were cut and edited, and now they're seeing what it's like to have their words published and spread around. Now, this is not as sexy as the big idea. Writing a series of short, intense pieces took weeks of work and demanded trial and error over and over again, rather than a light bulb moment. This approach may not feel like creativity because it imposes constraints and asks prose writers who sometimes resist compression to consider every word. Students often tell me that they could pack much, much more into their pieces if only I would double or triple the word count. But no, I'm asking them to be vivid and precise and concrete and to make every word count, to renounce chattiness, to not ramble on to use imagination to enter a moment rather than to whirl around it being general and vague and lyrical.